Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to Small Business Digest Radio. My name is Donald Mazzella, and I'm Editorial Director of Small Business Digest. Each hour here at Small Business Radio, we hope to bring you information, strategies, and suggestions to help small business managers increase profits, add sales, better manage cash flow, improve employee management, and streamline operations. Today's guests include Bill Thomas to talk about Obamacare and how it affects small businesses, Rachel Lehman discussing how her creative company works successfully as a virtual entity, and, and Ann Miller offering advice on how small business leaders can better communicate with their customers and staff. Our first guest is Bill Thomas, who has been involved with the insurance industry and particularly health savings accounts for a good many years. He is a nationally known speaker on the board of an insurance company for sole practitioners and is the executive director of the Compassionate Care Foundation of New Jersey. Uh, Bill, welcome to the show. Thanks, Don. I'm happy to be here. Uh, uh, Bill, our first question, I don't know if you uh, saw, but this week uh, the Wall Street Journal and other publications have reported that uh, individuals and small businesses face increased um, uh, premiums next year as a result of Obamacare. uh, What do you see small businesses facing in coming months and years in terms of changes in the, uh, the new legislation uh, is uh, is uh, forcing on on the country. Well, um, let me preface it by saying they asked the Dalai Lama uh, what he thought of the French Revolution, and his response was, "It's too soon to tell." So we have a um, we have a new law that has yet to been fully implemented. Plus, the original law was over two thousand pages. And each one of those pages is turning into 10 pages of regulations, half, half of which those regulations have yet to be written by the Health and Human Service um, uh, Department at the federal government. So we really don't know all of the impact, and we won't know all of the impact for years. But there is some basics that we know about the law that will have an impact. The first is that the law itself is broken into different interest groups. So one interest group is employers with less than 50 employees. Another group is employers with more than 50 employees but not 100. And then there's a group that has more than 100 employees. So all of those are treated differently. And then full-time and part-time employees are treated differently. To specifically answer your question, the reason that health insurance premiums are going to rise next year for some people is that the law requires a minimum standard of benefits that everybody has to buy. Whether you're an individual or you're a business, you have to provide a minimum level of benefits. In some parts of the country, that minimum level of benefits is anticipated to be greater than what people are buying now. So as you increase benefits, the cost increases. And in some middle, the the Obamacare benefit plan that we've seen mimics the plans that are available in the Northeast, which are typically very rich programs. And then the states themselves are going to have some impact on what the benefits are. So if the states adopt these these richer benefits, 
you can see premiums increase significantly for everybody in a particular group. The second impact is the three-to-one rule. So I'm a career health insurance underwriter. And if I was going to provide a premium to somebody who's 26 years old, I would may charge them $100 a month. But if I had a 60-year-old, and I'm 65, so I'm not discriminating here. If I had a 60-year-old, I may charge them $1,000 a month. There would be a 10-to-1 ratio between the low premium and the high premium. The current ratio under Obamacare is 3-to-1, which means if I'm going to maintain the $1,000 premium for the individual who is 60, and those are the people who have all of the claims, people from 45 to 65 in commercial insurance have 80% to 90% of the claims, I can't lower their premium. But for the but for the young person, I'm going to raise their premium from $100 to maybe $300 a month. A lot of small, a lot of people right now are paying uh, group insurance rates. Young people at $500 a month. So you can imagine what that's going to go up to. So those are the things that uh, people are going. That's what's going to drive up premiums. Well, let's go. Let's talk a small business under. First, let's talk about a small business under 50 employees. Um, they're really not affected by the law as much. But what would you suggest that they be looking at and preparing for the future? Well, if you have less than 50 employees, you can now drop out of providing health insurance and have your people go to the exchange. The benefit of them going to the exchange is if there are people making less than $90,000 a year, they're going to get a portion of their premium paid by the federal government. So, so that would be a good reason. The, the only reason that employers provide benefits is to attract employees because the individuals had to go out into the individual market before and buy health insurance, which was very expensive. So now the employer doesn't have to provide health insurance to be equal with major corporations. But um, let, let's talk of that hypothetical employer. Right now he's providing it. And he says in September, as of um, January 1st, you're going out there and buying your own. Uh, should that a small business provide some sort of st stipend or should they just say goodbye? Um, it's going to come down to the, the employer. I mean, it's going to come down to the economics of the employer. These, these decisions are all going to, by business, all has to be based on what their um, constituency is and their employees. If I'm running a 40-person law firm and my average income for my people is uh, $200,000 a year, I'm probably going to buy a rich uh, benefit plan and give them that rich benefit plan. I'm not going to force them out onto the exchange because those people will not qualify for a subsidy from the federal government to buy the health insurance. So why would you, if I'm an employer, why would I make it my, me and my employee pay for health insurance that the federal government's going to pay for it or pay a large portion of it? So if you, it's all going to come down to your individual situation. If you have highly paid employees, it doesn't make a difference whether they're in the exchange or you buy them health insurance. But it may make a difference if the exchange does not provide a high level of health insurance benefits, which is what we're hearing uh, across the country. For example, 
Horizon uh, Blue Cross is planning to offer plans on the exchange based on Medicaid. Well, the doctors who will accept the Medicaid payment are very few and far between. So there's a lot of issues, and um, there's a big uh, uh, opportunity out there for consultants uh, to help employers make these decisions. Well, um, we, we talk about the exchange. Uh, uh, I saw a statistic that uh, 60% of Americans still don't understand what an exchange is. Would you, could you uh, elaborate a little bit? Well, I just booked a, um, a trip to Florida. I'm leaving in uh, two hours to go to Florida. I'm tired of this cold weather. So I went on and I made uh, reservations to, for tea times to play golf uh, on a website that offered me uh, hundreds of choices of golf courses, hundreds of choices of times to play, and different rates to play. So basically in the future, a uh, person is going to be able to go on to the uh, website of the exchange and make the same kind of decision uh, about what health insurance plan they want and how much it's going to cost and how they're going to pay for it. So in the, in the days of the Internet, it's going to be something that's online that you should be able to do very easily. Uh, it's going to be up to the government whether they actually uh, implement it or not this year. Um, I've heard that it may be delayed a year before the federal exchanges are up and running. Uh, that will put a, a little hold in that. You know, um, an interesting point here. Uh, ins uh, insurance agents are really caught between a rock and a hard place on, on this issue. Uh, do you think that the, uh, uh, they actually have a bigger role or a lesser role in this world today? Well, it all comes down to money. The, uh, a lot of insurance companies, health insurance companies, have gone from a percentage of premium commission basis to a flat rate. So they may pay a broke, an insurance broker $10 a month per enrolled individual to help in the administration of an account. Um, you may find that model going forward. I know that the federal government has put out feelers to insurance brokers to help them enroll people into the exchanges. You can see it's a very complex set of rules that are coming down, thousands of pages of rules. Um, so if you, it's almost like your income tax. If you have a very simple program, you may be able to do it yourself, but if you have a complicated tax return, you may have to go hire a professional to do it. So I see them moving more in from a commission sales to more of a being a consultant or getting a flat enrollment fee from an insurance company. Okay, uh, let's talk about um, uh, insurance policy. I know we first originally met, uh, and you were uh, one of the two leaders um, uh, for Perfect Health, which offered HSA insurance, health savings accounts. Do you still think uh, they're the best uh, uh, offering for uh, um, a company or an individual? Well, I'm a, I'm a uh, scientific research. Uh, person, I do scientific research for insurance companies and for major employers. So what I mean by scientific research is, is that we don't base anything on opinion. I don't write opinion letters for FedEx or you know some other uh, company that I work for. I write facts. So looking at the facts, no matter who you are, no matter how sick you are, a health savings account is a better buy and a better strategy for managing medical costs 
than a traditional insurance policy. We study people with heart conditions, diabetes, uh, that just uh, families who have just a few doctor visits a year. Um, we, we examined every disease state and we've examined every strata of the population. Unless you have a very poor population that uh, cannot have um, uh, sort of a minor cash flow uh, issue, may have a minor cash flow issue, who doesn't have credit, uh, maybe to get over a certain period of time that they needed it. Uh, but we think that that is definitely uh, the best way to go. And you'll see going forward, if they're allowed under uh, Obamacare, that will be the fastest growing uh, part of the insurance spectrum going forward. Well, um, what I heard recently this week from uh, uh, our sources in Washington is that uh, uh, although the, uh, President Obama himself does not like HSAs, um, they are going to be um, uh, available through the exchanges if, as you say, they um, – uh, they move forward, but um, let's let's talk a little bit. Uh, I'm a small business owner. Um, I'm I'm sitting here trying to figure out w uh, what happens uh, in the in the future. What should I be doing in the next three or four months to um, prepare for 2014? Well, I would be. Um waiting now until the summer to see what's happening with the exchanges. So we may see, uh, and what, I, what I'm what i predicting for people, I sit on the board of a new insurance company, and what I'm predicting is that the exchanges will be, and Obamacare will be delayed by one year. And that's because you have a big midterm election coming up, and two things are going to impact that election from a healthcare standpoint. One is, in October, when people start going on to the exchanges, if they're up, they're going to see a significant increase in health insurance premiums. The second thing is 5 million Medicare recipients of Medicare Advantage will again see another significant increase in their premiums. And this may sour people on the Democrats. So from a political standpoint, things may get delayed for a year just, uh, just for that. And, and I don't think Health and Human Services is up and running yet with the exchanges. But I'm just I'm speculating now. That's What I would do if I was a small business is I would look at my own situation. Can I afford to provide health insurance the way I'm performing, uh, offering it today? We've been seeing 20% rate increases year over year for a number of years. With that, If you didn't change your benefit plan, what I would do if I was a small business, I would look at health savings accounts because they are going to significantly reduce my premium that I pay out, and I'm going to have to fund some of the health savings account itself. But I would be exploring that right now, or I would be figuring out, should I be putting my people in the exchange? And I would talk to a consultant, an accountant, or my insurance broker and see what they say. Well, you know, uh, Bill, you and I started out with the HSAs when there were just 44,000. Uh, now there are uh, 15 million Americans covered by HSAs, and if we sound as if we're biased about it, uh, I have to tell you, I I am. They're the only things, the only thing out there that uh, uh, save you dollars when you buy it, save you dollars when you spend it, and save you do uh, uh, dollars uh, 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 when you retire. So. Um, uh, uh, 
Bill, I guess the next the next question uh, I'd ask is, what do you see for bigger companies, the over 50 employees? We have audience, uh, in the audience people who have oh, who have comp uh, over 50. Do you see any difference in what you suggested? Well, they're the ones who are really in the um, in the crosshairs. Um, I'm consulting with a, a, a large organization of restaurants and uh, representing restaurants and lodging who are really in the crosshairs because they have low-paid employees and typically they do not provide health benefits uh, to those people. They may have hundreds of employees. You know, I may own, if I own five um, Burger Kings, um, I used to own actually eight Jiffy Lubes. Uh, but we provided health insurance to everybody because our people were a little bit more higher paid because they were mechanics. But if I'm running a restaurant chain, I may not be providing health benefits. I'm going to be charged $2,000 per employee if, for, as a penalty if I don't provide them with insurance. And then it really gets complicated if I do provide them with insurance because I can only charge the employee 9.5% of their W-2 income as their contribution. And it's really muddled right now. I mean, I, I looked at an Ernst & Young report. I mean, you have to be a CPA to figure out what your penalties are, what your taxes are uh, on these plans going forward. If you have more than 100 employees and you have health insurance benefits, you cannot cancel your insurance now and put the people into the exchange. So as I said, you know, when they enacted Medicare, and I just started Medicare last year, when they enacted Medicare, everybody was treated the same. But under Obamacare, almost everybody in America is treated differently. It is the most uneven law that has ever been written because it penalizes a large employer uh, and doesn't penalize as much a small employer. So what small employer wants to be a large employer? You know, Because healthcare benefits are a major factor in, in uh, financing an insurance company, I, I, excuse me, a small business or any business. Uh, the, the chairman of General Motors used to say he was in the healthcare business and he used autos to pay for his healthcare. So it's a, it's a really muddled, and um, there's going to be a lot of waivers going out. So I would be uh, looking for what waiver can I get from the federal government for my industry. Well, uh, Bill, um, a point that uh, was made to me recently is a lot of companies are avoiding. Um, hiring that 50th 50 employee or that 100th employee simply because of Obamacare. Is that that's something you've heard about? Well, I've heard about it. I have no evidence that it's happening. I operate a small business, and um, it's a not-for-profit foundation. And, um, you know, unless we really grew the foundation, we would never get to 50, you know, upwards of 50 employees. But if I was, you know, sitting there and I was going to hire my 99th employee, I then have to go back and look at all the rules because the rules differentiate between uh, seasonal employees, between part-time employees, full-time employees. What I have heard is that, and I've only heard this uh, anecdotally, that people who have full-time employees who may be working 35 hours a week are reducing them down to under 30 hours a week, so they're not considered to be full-time. I have heard that. No, very definitely. Uh, you, you bring up compassionate care. Uh, public disclo disclosure, I sit on uh, 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 Bill's board. 
uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the, the fascinating experience that you're, you're doing right now. Well, this is, um, this is a situation that is unique in American history that we're aware of. Our lawyers tell us that. We, are, we have started a, a not-for-profit corporation that is uh, providing medicine to people. But because that medicine is considered to be federally illegal, but legal in New Jersey, uh, we are not allowed to deduct our business expenses. So how would you like to run a business where you have to pay income tax on your gross sales? Uh, we're in the medical marijuana business. Um, this is something that I was asked to get into because we've done a lot of different healthcare projects in the states for several governors. So we were asked to uh, uh, form this almost as a public service, as a utility uh, for people. Our, my, my, uh, our chairman is the former health commissioner of New Jersey. So uh, we're not, we're not uh, stoners, as they call them, or we're not users of the drug. We're just trying to provide drug to people who have uh, um, treatments that uh, they can't tolerate for um, cancer and for multiple sclerosis. Uh, but it's been very difficult because of the New Jersey law is very restrictive, and it's been very difficult to get any kind of investment because we're not for profit. So even if you even if you gave me a, um, a contribution to my foundation, I would have to treat it as Bill, I hate to c cut you off now, but we have to go to commercial. I want to thank you for your very illuminating. Uh, 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 visit this today, and uh, the, hopefully you'll come back to the program another time. I'd love to, Don. Thank you very much for having me. Okay. Um, now a word for our sponsor, and we'll, we'll have our next guest in less than a minute. Many small businesses purchase supplies, equipment, other needs through local stores. To save money on many of these purchases, consider Deem.com. This purchasing site offers real bargains and large discounts on many key items needed to run your business, and it's free to join and use. That's deem.com. Again, deem.com for all your small business needs. Welcome back. <clears throat> There's much ado these days about Yahoo's chief executive bringing all workers into the office and eliminating working at home. Surveys have shown that many small businesses are actually virtual organizations. Indeed, Small Business Digest is. But critics claim this hampers creativity. Five Currents is the production firm behind the 2012 London Olympic ceremonies, the 2002 Salt Lake Olympics, the Pan American Games, Disney's 50th anniversary celebration, and a host of other breathtaking world events. The company is based in California, but operates strictly on a telecommuting basis. Today, we have, we have one of their senior people from Five Currents, Rachel Lehman, project manager at Five Currents, um, to discuss just how they do it. Rachel, welcome to the show. Good morning, Don. It's a pleasure to be here. Rachel, what does your company see as the advantages of having a virtual organization? The biggest advantage for us is being able to pull from a worldwide market for talent. We find that being able to 
not be constrained by geographic market or the cost associated with relocating people to a geographic market really serves us when it comes to events. And not always do we need the same type of talent, the same type of person. So being able to flex that as well for an event um, makes a lot of sense. What what types of uh, products uh, do you use to uh, communicate with each other? I mean, what technologies do you use? Well, like most businesses, a telephone and a computer is really all you need to be able to promote business. But in our case, because we aren't physically located, we make um, pretty hefty usage of Skype. We make a fairly uh, significant usage of airplanes and hotel rooms. (laughs) Um, uh, Does working remotely or this way stifle creativity? We don't think so. We think it actually promotes it. I don't know about you, but I find that I'm the most productive from about 6 a.m. in the morning until about 1 p.m., and then a little less productive until evening time. Hmm. So allowing a person to work during their most productive times ensures that we get the most from each employee on the things that we're asking them to do. And then when it comes time for a collaboration, it's no different than scheduling a meeting. Our meetings just happen to be from wherever uh, it serves you. Today I, I take this call from Tahoe looking across the lake after having a beautiful day of skiing with my children yesterday. And for me, that puts me in the right place to be pretty darn productive when I need to be. Well, we're really glad you're here today. Um, tell us a little bit about your background, what what you're doing now and what you did uh, com- coming here, coming to where you are now. You bet. I serve as the Senior Vice President for our business development for Five Currents, and then I also take on management roles during any kind of Olympic operation. It's a little bit of an all-hands-on-deck when a big event takes place. My background is primarily in building businesses. I ran a private equity firm for about 10 years and worked on the Olympic Games in 2002 in Salt Lake with Scott prior to that Um, and uh, joined the company as a board advisor when it was founded in 2005 and then officially joined the business about a year, a little over a year ago now on a full-time basis. Wow, that's really great. But now let's talk about creativity uh, operating remotely, uh, what what do you see? Are the, well, you've mentioned some of the advantages, but what are some of the disadvantages of being remote? Do you have it? Do you see any? There are some. Working across multiple time zones is a challenge. You know, for our project that we're working on right now, there are people that are providing services from Australia, people that are providing services from the U.S., from London, from Greece, from Turkey. Uh, You name it. It's really, truly a worldwide virtual company. And trying to figure out how to um, get all of us together when needed across multiple time zones means that there has to be flexibility from the employee. Um, I wouldn't say it's an insurmountable challenge, but it can be a little tough when you're talking about 12 hours between now, between here and Moscow, as an example. Um, uh, Do you recommend... uh, what uh, techniques do you use to uh, ensure that employees are collaborating well? I mean, uh, how do you measure and how do you uh, manage this diverse uh, operation? We spend a lot of time on that question. The biggest thing that we try to do is align the objectives and ensure that everybody has uh, really is pulling for the same thing based on their area of expertise. That's a little easier to do for us obviously because the event itself becomes uh, a pretty easily visible goal that that everybody understands. Notwithstanding, though, 
like most businesses that are successful, if you can align the objectives of each one of the employees to really uh, promote team play and promote the event itself, you can generally solve um, the challenge of not being together. And all, all that said, when when the time comes, when you need to actually be in a room together and you can't do it over video conference, we, we make pretty liberal use of an airplane and pretty liberal use of hotel meeting facilities or client meeting facilities to get the job done. Well, I noticed uh, that, <clears throat> that for the London Olympics, you all went to London and sat in uh, hotel rooms to get things done. Um, does it disrupt sometimes family life? That's a great question. It's really part of the job. Um, you know, in my case, uh, as a single mom, I spend two weeks uh, a month with my children. I spend two weeks um, traveling abroad just wow. based on the role. And that seems to work for our family, but um, it does require some flexibility from each one of the employees. End of the day, um, the people that work for Five Currents have concluded that working from a market that they enjoy, working um, from a, a home office and the flexibility that that provides is far more beneficial for them than commuting in and going to an office and being home every evening for dinner. I would say in today's, um, in today's lifestyle, there's tons of business travel to really be effective. In my case, um, when I was working in private equity, I actually traveled more than I travel now, um, even though it's for longer durations when I'm gone. Also, uh, uh, you have a background. You, uh, did I hear prime equity? Uh, you work for them? No, private equity. Ah, um, private, so private the equity. Investment, the investment right. business. And, um, I, I guess uh, my final question to, uh, to you would be, um, uh, you're a creative uh, sort of company. Uh, what, what would you suggest for a company uh, that is uh, – uh, more uh, based on uh, uh, routine. Well, nothing in a small business is routine, but in a, a, a kind of a repetitive environment. Uh, how do you manage a, a diverse or virtual organization? Do you have any ideas? You know, I think it depends on the business, but the idea that people can work effectively um, and not be face-to-face, -face, I think is one that has been toyed with for a very long time. It is about a certain type of person. It's about a self-starter. It's about someone who cares about delivering to their objectives. Um, and I think if you can find that, build that, build incentive programs around objectives that are about achieving goals as opposed to time spent doing them, you can be successful. For a small business, I think it's pretty effective. Again, being able to pool talent from multiple markets, <clears throat> being able to save the cost that you would spend on brick and mortar in a facility where you come together for uh, for a certain number of hours a day, um, just for the benefit of being co-located, I think can be overrated. In our case, we take that money and spend it on airplane flights and technology and uh, meeting rooms when we need to be together. But allow people to work from the kitchen table in the most comfortable attire for them and when it makes sense for them. Um, and so I, I think it's really about identifying the right people to do each one of these jobs. And I think that would work really in almost any structure, clearly in a manufacturing environment where there's specialized equipment, 
probably isn't as successful, but in almost any professional services firm or um, in, in our case, a, create, a creative firm, a project management firm, I think it works rather well. Well, well really, thank you for coming on today and talking with us. Uh, Rachel, uh, we hope you'll come back again. But before we go, do you want to say a little bit more about uh, your company and uh, uh, how people might uh, reach you or, or your company? I'd be delighted to. Five Currents is generally a live event management business, and we do activities that go anywhere from the scale of an Olympic Games where we produce opening and closing ceremonies all the way to producing a CEO's keynote speech for important shareholder meeting or for a product launch. That gamut um, is really what, uh, what we are successful at. We take the objectives of an organization and we drive it through everything that they do in their live event. We call that strategic creative, and it's probably our biggest claim to fame. Our business is about um, it is a business that scales up and down based on what the needs are. In London, there were 880 people that were employed by Five Current. Um, however, for an event that we did, Clinton Global Initiative, there were less than 30. So it really depends on the event. We scale ourselves and our services to exactly what's required. As for reaching us, that's pretty easy to do. You can reach me at rlehman, L-E-H-M-A-N, at fivecurrents.com, or by simply looking for us on the web at fivecurrents.com. Don, I don't know if there's anything else that you want me to talk to or share, but uh, I'm happy to do so. Rachel, thank you, and and have a good day. Thanks so much. I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you today. Now, a word from our sponsor. Want to know more about health savings accounts for your company or yourself? Go to 2hsa.com and get a free employer's primer. Health savings accounts are a cost-effective way of offering health care benefits to your employees and yourself. HSAs build retirement funds for your employees, improve morale, and reduce your health care benefit costs. For a free employer guide to HSAs, go to 2hsa.com. That's 2hsa.com. Welcome back. Better communications are important to all of us, yet we often don't understand how critical they are to, uh, to success. For small business leaders, communication is extremely critical to their success. Today, we talk with someone who has helped thousands of managers and salespeople get their message across, whether internally or in a sales situation. <clears throat> Each time I hear her speak or talk with Ann Miller, I learn something, uh, something new, and I expect to gain more knowledge today. Her no- newest book, which is a fabulous read, is The Tall Lady with the Iceberg. The Power of Metaphors to Sell, Persuade, and Explain Anything to Anyone, available on Amazon. Uh, for her, blo- uh, her website or blog or free newsletter, it's www.annmiller.com. Ann, welcome to the show. Hi, Don. Great to be here. Uh, uh, Ann, tell us a little bit about your background. Uh, how, how many hours do you have? Like many people, I have a checkered background. I started out in teaching, wound up on Wall Street, went into advertising, and then went into the training industry. And as a result, I've spent a lot of time uh, doing selling and presentation skills, training and speaking and coaching 
in media, financial services, and professional service firms as well, including small business people. And it's it's been a great run. I love it. Well, I, I know I've, I've run across. Um, by the way, um, uh, one of the things is I noticed that uh, long before storytelling became popular as something that people talked about in communications, you talked about story, storytelling. Um, do you want to? Uh, I know it's a little diverging from what we originally talked about, but t t tell tell the audience how storytelling can be an effective communication tool. Sure, no problem. And actually, even before me, there was Aristotle. So it goes way back to the Bible, to Aesop's fairy tales, to cavemen. We love to hear stories because they appeal to our right brain. We see them. There are emotions attached to them. We remember them. So storytelling has been around for a long, long, long time. And the reason it's been around for a long time is because it's so effective. With my work, uh, as part of that, oh, years ago I was running a seminar, and I had a woman in the program from Business Week, and we were talking about the power of metaphors to make a point in a presentation. And she said, oh, is there a book on that? And I said, no, not yet. <laughs> and so I wrote the book on using metaphors and analogies to help you sell, overcome objections, become memorable, etc. In fact, they say there are seven key situations where you should use metaphors. But metaphors and, and stories are very related because you can use a story as a metaphor to make a point. And in fact, you could argue that's what all the stories from the Bible and Aesop's fables were. They were used to make a point. And so today, when people have really limited attention spans, sometimes you've got to have a concentrated story. And a metaphor or an analogy encapsulates your point very vividly and drives your point home. You know, a really simple example is from the news when the government was run out of money and we had all kinds of uh, deficit budget problems. And then the, the phrase fiscal cliff came into being. Well, that's a, ma a metaphor. And in, buried in those two words is the story of the economic crisis that the country was in. So that's uh, my connection to storytelling. And I think also if I can add something, you could start a presentation with a story as long as it leads to the point of what you're making. So it's metaphorically used to make your point. Oh, uh, let's uh, move on. What do you think are the critical elements to person-to-person -person communication? Uh, well, it's all about them. It's not about you, honey. <laughs> Uh, in training and coaching executives and entrepreneurs, the biggest problem I see they have is that when they go to see a new client, they're so eager to tell them about their capabilities and how wonderful they are that they forget that people don't really care. It's what I call the uh, the kid picture syndrome. I mean, whose pictures would you rather look at, pictures of your children or pictures of my children? I think probably it's pictures of your children. So when you go in to see clients or prospects, you've really got to start talking about them, getting them engaged, focusing on their needs and their interests, looking at their pictures, so to speak. And only then will they be interested in hearing what you have to say or to follow on the metaphor to look at your pictures as well. So bottom line, it's staying focused on the customer. 
uh, would be the critical element, uh, I think, in interpersonal communications for everybody, not just small business people. You know, that's funny, Anne, because uh, when we talk to people about their website, we always uh, tell them to put the benefit to the visitor as the first words or the first paragraph, and almost no website today does it. Uh, it uh, we, we think it's so critically important, and here you're bringing it up. Uh, how would individuals be concerned about when trying to uh, to convey an idea or concept, particularly in motivating employees? Well, I think, you know, there's an interesting question. I think there are two points here. Let's just talk about motivating employees, and you may not like my response, but I don't think you an outside person can motivate anybody. I think that comes from within. But I think what a company can do, whether it's large or just very small, is create the environment that motivates people who want to work and give you their best. And by that I mean actions speak louder than words. So if you run a company where people are treated fairly, if people are kept in the loop, if you're committed to doing good work, really good work for the client so people feel proud of what they do, if you work just as hard as your employees do so that you're walking the talk, then I think people feel very motivated to give you their best. Uh, I, I think if they're recognized periodically for doing exceptional work, if you develop a feeling of family, even in a large company, uh, then people are motivated. So it's not so much what you say is in that situation is what you do. You know, it's funny you mentioned that. I always remember um, working for a company where we were setting up a, a, a booth at a show, and the and the owner came and sat down and, uh, while we worked uh, feverishly to get it up in time and just sat there and talked on the phone. Uh, I, I've always re- remembered that as a, a way of not being able to uh, uh, motivate the troops. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, it kind of kind of fits the pattern. Um, uh, you know, uh, Marshall McLuhan and other people, what we say and what we do and how we com- communicate impact uh, others. How do mm-hmm. how do we go about um, uh, ensuring that what we want to say, what we want to uh, convey, uh, uh, we actually are able to do it? I know you have some uh, always have some good ideas. Yeah, well, that, that's an excellent question because just because your mouth is moving doesn't mean the other person's getting it. And I think you have to think about the other person on several levels. One is, for example, on just how you like to talk about things. Some people are very, very data-bound. They like facts. They like figures. They like numbers. They like going to decimal points to the third place. Other people are very, forget all of that, just give me the top line. If I have any questions, I'll ask you about the details. So you have to know who am I talking to. Is this a bottom line kind of person who likes to get bullet points in their presentations, who likes to hear things in bullet point form? Or am I talking to someone who wants to go into excruciating detail? Or am I talking to someone like a Steve Jobs who... They're all about the future and about new ideas and the impact of new ideas and show me something that's different and exciting. And if you walk in with the same old, same old, you're never going to really connect with that person. 
Now, you might walk in with the same old, same old, because it's not new, but you need to be able to cast it or frame it in a way that the other person thinks it's exciting and new. So a large part of it is saying to yourself, how do these people process information? What are they really, really interested in? Um, Another type of person is very interested in the impact on other people, what I call the Oprah type. You know, they get their their energy from other people and from relationships. So if you're presenting something, then it needs to appeal to that person. You have to show the impact on the team, that other people have done this. It's been very successful. Whereas if you're talking to the analytical person, it would be more, here are the five reasons why this will work. (laughs) They care less about the impact, perhaps, on other people. So it goes to thinking about, Who am I talking to? How do I dress this fact up in a way that will appeal to them? I think that's very important. I just want to point out that that when I asked the question, uh, Anne said that's a good question. Uh, Sometimes you also should learn to be a good listener. Mm -hmm. Uh, Would you want to kind of expand a little bit on that, Anne? Sure. Sure. You know, there's an old, old cliche that says God gave you two ears and one mouth. He must have wanted you to listen twice as much as he wanted to talk. I mean, it's really old. But there's truth to it. People don't listen very well. I know when I do negotiating courses and you do a case study exercise, at the end of the exercise, you ask people, so what did you learn from that? And they always say, we didn't listen enough. We didn't listen enough. People wait to speak they wait for the other person to finish speaking so they could speak and so they're not really listening to what the other person is saying if they would just hold back restrain themselves they would get at subtleties and feelings and issues that they could really address Um, the other reason i think people don't listen so well is that they're afraid i mean they know what they want to say and if the other person brings up something that they're not familiar with that can be threatening. So I'll just walk over what you say and tell you what I think. And then there are the people who listen. I used to have a friend who, if you had a headache, she had a brain tumor. If you if she, if you hurt your f- a finger, she broke her arm. I mean, there's always someone who wants to tell you about their story and how much worse it was and how much better it is and how you do it better. That is very off-putting to other people. So listening is the key, key skill. Give your listeners a tip on how to become a better listener. One or two tips. One is let the other person finish talking, number one. And number two, try to use a word that you hear them say as they're speaking in your response to them. So if they use the word pressure, for example, in what they were saying, then you're next remark might be interesting where is that pressure coming from or it must be difficult to be working under such pressure if you make yourself use a word that they just used there's a good chance you will improve your listening skills um what do you um you you often teach sales courses and Mm -hmm. i have uh there's a saying that a small business leaders uh sells 24 hours a day What are some of the uh, key elements of convincing others, um, whether sales or whatever? Well, 
persuasion is is an art as well as a science. And these days it's harder to persuade people to buy your services or products for three reasons. One is we live in a world of constant communication. I mean, people are just drowning in information, so they'd rather tune you out than tune you in. Second, there are a lot of services and products that look remarkably alike. And at the end of the day, let's say you're an accounting firm, your services are pretty much alike. So standing out, separating yourself is very difficult in the eyes of a potential client. And the third challenge is that people have very, very short attention spans, and they're getting shorter. I don't know if this is true, but I read online someplace that people online have a shorter attention span than that of a goldfish, with the goldfish having a nine-second attention span and the online user having an eight-second attention span. Now, whether that's true or not, directionally, we all intuitively know it's true. So these things make it very, very hard for uh, small business people to get themselves heard out in the marketplace. And if you say, what can they do? I think it goes back to you've got to really listen to what the other person is saying. And you have to use language that is very vivid and memorable in talking about your services, which gets me back to metaphors and analogies or examples so people can really relate to what you're saying. You know, Anne, I, I won't, I'll interrupt you here. Uh, I saw a, com- a commercial. I was at an event uh, Thursday night of an accounting firm that put uh, sunglasses on all their employees and had them do rap. And it was the most god-awful commercial I had seen in a long time. Yeah. Uh, it was part of a presentation. Uh, they were trying to break out of the mode and try, try to... <laughs> Uh, but it, it it just so felt so flat. Uh, I was I was really surprised. But um, uh, sometimes. Well, people, my, uh, yeah, my advice there is before you do something like that, you should test it on people who are potential viewers or listeners, because uh, that's too high risk to do that without a test. Well, apparently they say they've had great success with it, but uh, I, it turned me off. And the worst part is I can't even remember the name of the, of the uh, accounting firm. Um, what are some of the strategies for getting our ideas or uh, concepts across that you'd like to share today? Okay, let me give you a couple. One is be sure you have a message. People will walk in and say, for example, let's say you're an executive recruitment firm. The wrong way to talk about yourself is to say, we're an executive recruitment firm. We've been in business for 25 years. We specialize, let's say, in in high-level C-suite executives. These are our accounts. We're in these many offices. And people think they're communicating that way, but they're not. They're just giving a lot of information. So when that person walks out and the next firm walks in, and says we're an executive recruitment firm, and they just change the numbers a little bit. We've been in business for 15 years. We also specialize in C-suite, and we have two offices. It's a blur in someone's mind. So the number one point I would tell your listeners is have a clear message. So a clear message could be something like this. Let's say you're the executive search firm. Okay. People use us for three reasons. One, two, three. Give them a very clear, whatever the one, two, three is, clear 
uh, message. Say it up front. At the end of the conversation, remind them again. So again, people use us. People like you use us for these three reasons. Okay. Let's say it's speed, quality, and and um, and consistency, whatever it is. Keep it short. Keep it to three. Don't keep it to more than three because people can remember three things. So one clear message can be a list of three items. A second clear message can be a statement. A statement that says, look, all the other firms in this field, and there are many of them, will do X, but only our firm does X and Y. So now you've just given yourselves a good, clear competitive positioning. One statement, everyone does X, but we do X and Y. A third possibility as a clear message is to use a metaphor or an analogy. So, for example, I know someone who sells advertising, and she has a very niche market. So her competition is larger uh, media that have much bigger markets. So she'll say, the reason people work with us or advertise with us is because basically we're a hook into your best clients. We have, we're targeted, we're custom, we're high-end, a real hook into your primary consumer. Now, and she even brings a little hook with her or has a hook in the presentation. That's an appropriate use of props. She's not wearing sunglasses like that accounting firm. It sounded like the sunglasses had nothing to do with what they did. They just did the wrap thing to be different. But the prop that you use or have on your visual needs to relate to the concept of what you're talking about. Uh, and sometimes you can combine things. You can say, you know, people use us for three reasons, which makes us the hook that will get you your best customer. But having a clear message is the number one piece of advice I would give people for getting their ideas across to people. Tell us a little bit about your book. Ah, my pleasure. So the book is based on the premise that it's a crowded world and over information overloaded world and that people really don't have very much of an attention span and that people remember visually that's the whole thing you and i and everyone on this phone remember visually you walk down the street you run into someone you haven't seen before and you say oh i know you i know you how do i know you and as you go through your mind you don't remember words you don't remember numbers you remember images, right, Don? And you say, oh, yeah, I remember you. you. You sat behind me in the second grade. We remember visually. We respond visually. 9-11 uh, is vivid in our memories. The birth of a child, a small child, is vivid in your memory. You remember the children. Uh, so why not leverage that? That's the way our brains work. Why not leverage that in terms of getting your ideas across? So, for example, and, and that's what the book is about, leveraging the fact of how the right brain works. And it's filled with about 250 examples and stories of people in business who have used metaphors and analogies to clinch a deal, make a point, uh, take away confusion, and it really works. And also in the book are exercises to strengthen the skill set. Well, sounds like an exciting book. Um, uh, we're coming up to the close of the hour. Uh, Anne, what what three things would you want to leave with our audience uh, today? In terms of communication, hmm. one is to always think about the other person. Uh, 
What are their needs? What are their interests? How do they process information? Second, to be brief and to use your words powerfully. Make your words count. Make your words count. And three, to think about consciously using metaphors and analogies in your conversation because that's how people remember you. And by the way, Don, I do a free metaphor newsletter, which they can get online. And that website is annmiller.com, and Ann is spelled with an E, annmiller.com. And they can sample this and see what people just like themselves have been doing to be more successful in business with the power of these words. Well, thank you, Ann, for very illuminating. I hope you'll come back sometime soon. and we'll oh, My talk. pleasure. Okay. Have a good day. Um, each hour, we would like to close with a timely hint from our panel of experts. Today's comes from, the, from True Pettigrew, founder of True Access. When working as a part of a leadership team, there will be differences of opinion. You will not always like or agree with the recommendation or approach of a fellow leader, and they will not always like or agree with the approach. When you reach this impasse, this is not the time to attempt to sabotage, uh, to ego, or to pursue personal agendas, but to go with the team. I see our, um, our hour is nearly up. Uh, our next program is really exciting. We have da David Katzmeyer talking about how you can use Blog Talk Radio to, de to develop a marketing program of your own. And we have Mike Escuso talking about uh, improving the management in small business. Uh, Mike uh, reorganized Kellogg, Frito-Lay, and, uh, and Dell. He's a nationally known uh, expert, and we're really happy to have him on the program. So until next time, this is Don Mazzella. And uh, remember, you can reach us at uh, number 2 sbdigest.com. Or you can talk, uh, email me directly at dmazella at is-incorp.com. Until then, good, night, good day and have a nice day.